What is up everyone? It is Bo here. Hope you guys are having a fantastic day. Today's episode is based off the practice problems on our website. So although it was made with video in mind, meaning that there are some diagrams and charts and photos uh, to describe some of the lesions and some of the pathology uh, through thorough descriptions of the questions, through reviewing all the answer choices and describing kind of what we're looking at, we hope that you, the listener, still finds a tremendous amount of value in these episodes. So let us know what you think. If you like these, if you don't, what would you prefer? This is always a fluid work in progress. So hope you guys have a fantastic day and enjoy the episode. What's up everyone? If you've ever had trouble with electrolytes or acid base, this is the practice quiz for you. So come with me. We'll go to our website, buzzwordsmed.com. We'll go to ace the boards and then practice exam. When I click this button, the timer's gonna start, so we're gonna go pretty quickly, all right? So, question number one. A patient is diagnosed with a hyperactive, calcium-secreting splenic lymphoma, so a malignancy that's secreting calcium. What would you expect your blood calcium and parathyroid levels to be? So is this PTH independent or dependent? That's all the question is asking you. So, would the calcium be elevated or decreased? Elevated, and would the PTH be elevated or decreased? Well, in this case, it's independent of PTH. So the feedback loop is actually going to decrease your PTH. So in that case, we're going to have elevated calcium, decreased PTH as our answer. We have a fantastic slide to show you guys here that shows a beautiful diagram of blood parathyroid hormone on the y-axis and blood calcium on the x-axis. I recommend you cement this in your head. You can see that calcium of malignancy has high blood calcium but low PTH. Kidney failure, on the other hand, you'll have a high PTH but low calcium. And then primary hyperparathyroid will be elevated calcium and PTH, which makes sense. And then you have a couple other things kind of within the mid-range of this chart, but I recommend everyone to look at this chart at least once. All right, next question. A patient presents hypokalemic with a potassium of 2.2. 80 milliequivalents of potassium are given, and after six hours, her potassium is rechecked, and now it's only 2.3. You expected it to go up by at least 0.8. So what other abnormality are you suspicious of? Is it hyponatremia, hypophosphatemia, hypocalcemia, or hypomagnesemia? So, in someone that has hypokalemia, that's recalcitrant, that is refractory to treatment, you need to think about hypomagnesemia because you need magnesium to help the sodium potassium ATPase. So if you don't have that, then you cannot funnel potassium into the body. So all the potassium you're giving this person isn't even being uh, absorbed. So if someone has hypokalemia, you need to check their magnesium because they mean need magnesium replacement as well. So hypomagnesemia is the correct answer there. Next question. A previously healthy gentleman presents with polyuria. Your analysis is unremarkable other than a low specific gravity. His parents are both deceased, although he recalls his father was often in the hospital for his blood condition. What is the etiology of this patient's condition? So patient has low specific gravity in his urine. Otherwise, the only history we get is his father had some type of blood condition. So question or answer one, excuse me, ADH deficiency or resistance, getting at diabetes insipidus, autoimmune mediated glomerulonephritis. So you can think about like lupus causing glomerulonephritis. You can think about um, good pasture syndrome. Uh, answer choice number three, repetitive microinfarcts of the kidney. So repetitive insults into the kidney that's occlusive. And then four, excess total body glucose. So this guy is peeing a lot. Diabetics, as we know, can have polyuria as well. So this is a tough question because diabetes insipidus with this story, it could happen. Autoimmune-mediated glomerulonephritis, sure, they're not giving you symptoms of any like pulmonary things with good pastures, so maybe less likely. 
But the key here is the history of the father. So the father has this blood condition and this guy has an inability to concentrate his urine. And that's commonly seen in those with sickle cell trait. So father probably had sickle cell disease. Kiddo has sickle cell trait. And because of that, he has these repetitive microinfarcts in the kidneys because some areas of the kidneys get really low blood perfusion, really low oxygen uh, PaO2, and therefore are more susceptible to sickling of the red blood cells there. So repetitive microinfarcts of the kidney would be the correct answer here. All right, next problem. Correction of hyponatremia too quickly can theoretically lead to, so low to high, your brain will die. High to low, your brain will blow. So will low to high hyponatremia correction to normal or eutremia, what would that cause? So low hyponatremia correction to a higher hyponatremia correction will be low to high, your brain will die, osmotic demyelination syndrome. All right. Just for the wards, it's typically, you know, six to eight mil equivalents every 24 hours is what the correction should be. And look at that, our time is up. We are not done, so we're going to continue. So select all possible etiologies of euvolemic hyponatremia. So I don't know if you've seen our video yet about this, but euvolemic hyponatremia, you need to think about psych and you need to think about endocrine. So psychogenic polydipsia, yes, that can cause euvolemic hyponatremia. Hypothyroidism, yes, that can cause euvolemic hyponatremia. Syndrome of inappropriate ADH, yes, that causes euvolemic hyponatremia. And glucocorticoid deficiency, yes, that does as well. So the three endocrine issues and then the psychogenic issue. So that's how you remember euvolemic hyponatremia. The most classic one is SIADH, but you can't forget about these other ones. The physical exam will be benign. You won't have an elevated JVD. They won't look too dry. Um, they'll be euvolemic, but they'll be hyponatremic. And you got to figure it out. So endocrine and psych, don't forget that. All right, select all correct pairings of underlying disorder and acid-base outcome. So, one, opioid overdose and respiratory acidosis. So do those two things make sense? When someone is overdosed on opiates, they breathe less, right? And because of that, they don't expel their CO2, and therefore respiratory acidosis does kind of make sense. That, that would be a correct answer. DKA and non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Does that make sense? No. Remember, DKA leads to a ketoacidosis. That is a high anion gap acidosis. So that would not be the correct answer. So vomiting, metabolic alkalosis. Do you get alkalotic or acidotic when you vomit? That's right. You do get alkalotic. I think about it as you're vomiting a lot of hydrochloric acid and to make that hydrochloric acid again into your stomach, your cells actually pump out bicarb into your blood, making you alkalotic. So that's how I think about it. So vomiting, yes, can lead to metabolic alkalosis. So that would be correct. Panic disorder and respiratory acidosis. Does that make sense? Well, if someone is having a panic disorder, what are they doing? They're breathing a lot like this, and therefore they're expelling a lot of CO2. Therefore, they would likely have a respiratory alkalosis. So it's the opposite of opiate overdose, which we said does cause a respiratory acidosis. And then aspirin overdose, primary metabolic acidosis and respiratory alkalosis. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, aspirin is one of those funny ones that you need to know that initially can stimulate respiratory drive and cause you to breathe a little faster and therefore causes a respiratory alkalosis. But then also aspirin is salicylic acid and can cause a metabolic acidosis. So it actually causes a mixed picture that we should know. All right, next question. A patient presents with polyuria and polydipsia. Blood glucose is 96 and hemoglobin A1c is 5, so those are fine. Serum sodium is 152, so elevated. Serum osmolality is 316, normal, elevated. Urine osmolality is 120, so much lower than the serum. What is the diagnosis and where is the pathology? So, is it diabetes insipidus with an unclear source? Diabetes insipidus, pituitary origin? 
diabetes insipidus kidneys and our DKA sources the pancreas. What do you think? Well, this looks like a diabetes insipidus picture to me. We have no signs of DKA. The blood glucose is fine and the A1C is fine. So those kind of point us away from that. So guy is urinating a lot. Do we know where it's from though? We don't. And we'd have to run more tests, right? We'd have to challenge him with desmopressin. Uh, we would have to see if he responds or not. If he responds, perhaps it's a central pituitary etiology. If he doesn't, perhaps it's a nephrogenic etiology. So more testing is indicated at this point. The correct answer would be, this is diabetes insipidus most likely, but the source is unclear. All right, next question. A 45-year-old male presents with worsening fatigue and weight loss. His TSH is normal. Noticeably, his sodium is 125 and his potassium is 5.4. Which organ is most likely dysfunctional? So is it the pituitary gland? Is it the adrenal gland? Is it his gonads? Or is it the thyroid? So right off the bat, we can say no thyroid because his TSH was normal. So if they give you a TSH that's normal in the question stem, the thyroid is normal. All right, gonads. Any indication that the gonads might be the issue? Not really. I mean, in theory, it could be, but we have nothing in the prompt. The only things we got in this prompt are low sodium and an elevated potassium. So what does that make you think of? Right, an adrenal issue. So the correct answer here is the pathology is likely in the adrenal gland. And so you're thinking, oh, well, it could be in the pituitary, right? Because the pituitary gland secretes hormones that can control, you know, the adrenal gland and all that good stuff. But in this case, because you have low sodium and high potassium, you're actually thinking of a primary mineralocorticoid issue, right? Because aldosterone typically does what? Funnel sodium in, brings potassium into the urine, and because you don't have that right now, you're not getting any sodium in, and you're not getting any potassium out. So that's aldosterone mineral corticoid. If you had a pituitary issue, that often doesn't affect the mineral corticoid to that degree. So you'd have, yes, like you would have glucocorticoid issues, maybe you'd be fatigued as well and have some weight loss. But at the end of the day, this electrolyte abnormality is pointing you towards kind of a mineral corticoid issue in addition to the glucocorticoid issue. So you want to think the adrenal gland would be the primary issue there. I hope that makes sense. All right. So which treatment option will help a patient with hyperkalemia decrease their total body potassium? So answer one, GI potassium binder. Two, dialysis. Three, diuretics. Four, albuterol. Five, sodium bicarb. And six, insulin. So which of these decreases your total body potassium? So if a patient came in, they had an AKI, um, they're just starting to pee again, but their potassium starts going up, 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 and you are a night resident and you get called in. They're asking you, hey, like, we need to get this potassium out. How would you do it? Well, GI potassium binder. Will that decrease their total body potassium? Yes. It'll bind the potassium and it'll let them excrete it. So that's fantastic. Dialysis. Yes, remember, that's one of the indications of emergent dialysis is electrolyte abnormality. So hyperkalemia is very dangerous, and therefore dialysis is a fantastic way, if everything else fails, to get the potassium out of the blood. Diuretics. Yes, that's another one. Have the person pee the potassium out. Fantastic. Four, albuterol. This does not actually decrease their total body potassium. Remember, albuterol is a temporizing measure. So it actually stimulates the beta receptor, and potassium will actually go intracellular, but it doesn't leave the body. Same thing with sodium bicarb, and same thing with insulin. So those are all temporizing agents, while the GI potassium binder, the diuretics, and dialysis actually get the potassium out of the body. And we have a fantastic chart to show you guys here. So this is kind of the abnormal potassium chart. It shows you all the etiologies of why someone could have abnormal potassium, hyperkalemia. We have crush injury hemolysis, 
exercise, beta blockers, acidosis, kidney injuries, very common in the hospital, some medications. So this is a beautiful chart to kind of ingrain in your head as to reasons why you would have hyperkalemia. And this little chart right here shows you which temporizing agents uh, work. So we just talked about insulin, beta agonists, and alkalosis, which was the sodium bicarb. So we have those three things that can help shift potassium temporarily into the cells. And then the things that shift potassium out of the cells are, are what's stated here, cell lysis, acidosis, exercise, and hyperosmolality. All right. So, next question. Select all possible etiologies of hypervolemic hyponatremia. So remember, we see hyponatremia as hypervolemic, euvolemic, and hypovolemic. We talked about euvolemic in the sense of endocrine and psych. Hypervolemic is three things you really need to think about. CHF, nephronic syndrome, and cirrhosis, where the body water is increased. And the body salt might be increased too, but to not the same degree. And therefore, you are hypervolemic and you are relatively hyponatremic. So in this case, the correct answer is nephronic syndrome, CHF, and cirrhosis. Vomiting diarrhea? No, that can lead to actually hypovolemic hyponatremia, right? Because you're getting all this water out. All right, next question. A gentleman comes in with burns on 40% of his body. So this is a burn question. He weighs 100 kilograms. You remember the Parkland formula is 4 milliliters of fluid multiplied by the percent of the body area burned and the patient's weight in kilograms. So how much fluid would you give him in the first 8 hours? So there are a couple steps to this question. So we multiply 4 milliliters by 40% and you multiply by 40, not by 0.4, and by his weight, 100 kilograms. And that's going to get you 16,000 milliliters or 16 liters. So how much fluid would you give him in the first eight hours? Do you give 24 liters, 16 liters, 8 liters, or 160 liters? So the correct answer here is 8 liters. And you're saying, hey, Bo, you just said 16 liters was answer to the calculation. Well, yes, but the Parkland formula shows that you do the calculation, you get 16 liters, and then half of that is given in the first eight hours and half is given in the next 16. So you will give 16 liters over 24 hours, but it's distributed a little unequally. So if we go back to the answer choice, the question was how much fluid would you give in the first eight hours? And you give half in the first eight hours, so you would give eight liters. All right, and then the last question today is, a patient is found down and brought to the hospital. On arrival, his EKG is noted to have a widening of his QRS. His urine is noted to be dark red as well. The lab is unable to run his blood, but what electronic abnormality are you acutely worried about? So a couple of hints here, right? Found down, widening of his QRS, dark red urine. Are we worried about hypocalcemia? Are we worried about hypocalcemia acutely? Are we worried about hypokalemia? Are we worried about hyperkalemia? Or are we worried about hypercalcemia? So the correct answer here is hyperkalemia. And we just saw that graph that showed etiologies of hyperkalemia, one of them being crush injury, another being rhabdomyolysis. So in this case, someone's found down, they could very easily have been injured, they could have very easily just had muscle breakdown from being down for so long. Um, you can even make assumptions sometimes of drug use, people that are methamphetamines can also uh, have rhabdo. So because of that, you want to think about hyperkalemia because the cells are breaking down and you have all this potassium rushing into the blood, into the body. The widening of the QRS is also a hint, and that's a key, key finding that it's actually getting quite severe. So. In this case, I gave you a little bit more of a rare finding, but a finding that you need to know nonetheless. So, in summary, found down, widening of the QRS and dark red urine, also potentially a sign of rhabdo, 
think hyperkalemia. And we'll go back to that chart real quick. Crush injury, hemolysis. All right, guys, I hope you guys found value in today's short video. As always, we have multiple practice exams on our website, buzzwordsmed.com. You can find our podcast and other videos there as well. And if you want to follow us for uh, more information, memes, see how we're doing with the podcast, updates, etc., etc., follow us on Instagram at buzzwordsmed.com. If you like this video, like, share, so other people like you can find this and find value in this. And until next time, have a fantastic day and a great rest of your week. Bye-bye now.